importance of both uh, men, what they bring, why they bring it, how they bring it. And uh, we're going to see a lot of stuff in here tonight. But uh, let's read verses 1 through 8 tonight. Um, and then we're going to jump right into verse uh, 3 and 4. The Bible tells us, And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord, and Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth, <clears throat> and why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou be accepted? Shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, Sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And Cain talked with his brother, and it came to pass, when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. We go from triumph of bringing in a child to tragedy with the death of a child. Not even just the death of a child, but the murder of one child murdering the other. The one who could have been in the eyes of, of Eve here, and perhaps even that of Adam, the one who would be the Messiah for them, the one who would crush the head of the serpent, the one who would fulfill the promise of God. He would instead murder his own brother. He would instead, even before he murders his own brother, approach God in a sinful and a fleshly way, which was wrong. And we're going to see how their hope goes to hopelessness. We see all these things. And we've begun looking at the people... We've looked a little bit at Adam and Eve, we've looked at Abel, and we've looked at Cain, we've seen a little bit of their lifestyle. Verse 2, uh, Abel's a keeper of sheep, he's a shepherd, Cain's a tiller of the ground, and then now we get into where we're going to be at tonight, and that's verses 3 and 4. We're picking up here specifically at Cain's offering, Cain's offering here, that little section, subsection C, uh, under the two offerings here, Cain's offering. Verse number 3, it says, in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground, an offering unto the Lord. Now, if we were just to read that without any other Bible knowledge, without any other context, without going further in the Scripture, we would go, well, Cain brings an offering to the Lord. That's good, isn't it? And we would think that on the surface. But sadly, what Cain does here is what the average Baptist does on a Sunday morning. He comes and he brings an offering to the Lord, but it's going, Lord, here's what I've brought to you. You ought to be pretty pleased with this. We have nothing truly to offer the Lord. God is not in need of a single soul. He wasn't in need of Cain. He wasn't, he wasn't in need of him. He wasn't in need of Abel. God needs nothing. Yet, He desires us to come to Him and, and even tells us how to come to Him. And this is why worship is so important and so key. I thank the Lord, first of all, that Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, has already been slain and risen again so that we don't have to sacrifice any more animals. We don't have to give any grain and wheat offerings. We don't have to you know, show up to church with a couple of turtle doves and sacrifice them. We don't have to do these ceremonial cleansings to get into this place. Worst thing we might have to do is slap on a little bit of deodorant before we come in here. Praise God for that. And even if you don't do that, we're not even going to shun you and kick you out of here. Well, we're just thankful you're here. The Lord has made a way for us when there was no way. But when we come to this, we've got to see that God... God cannot be approached by man's way. God cannot be approached any way that we so choose, but rather in the way in which God has said, this is the way. This is the only way of worship. Outside of the Bible is a dangerous place to try to worship the Lord. 
Outside of the Spirit is, is truly, it's not worship anymore. At least it's not worship of God. It can be easily, and it is a very fine line between worshiping the Lord in spirit and in truth, and then committing idolatry and worshiping oneself. As we look here at Cain's offering, <clears throat> as we remember, the end of chapter 3 and going into chapter 4, chapter 3 paints this beautiful picture of showing that the Garden of Eden is not just this garden, and it's got a few squash, some cucumbers in here, and then we throw in Adam and Eve, and they're running around naked, and they don't know it. This is the picture of the tabernacle, or the temple of God. This is the place where God and man can not only um, fellowship and coexist, but the place where God is meant to demonstrate His glory the most in the one that He made in His image and likeness, but as well to receive the glory from that same uh, creation. This is a place where God's grace and glory is demonstrated and begins to be demonstrated throughout all the rest of Scripture. You can trace God's grace and glory throughout all of the Bible. You'll find it in every covenant. You'll find it, um, you'll find it at the cross. You'll find it at the end of all things. That's what you find. It's how God reveals Himself. But in this, we found at the end of chapter 3, God sends them out because, it's, because of His glory. It cannot be tarnished, and He cannot allow sin to stay in this place where man was meant to remain sinless and had the ability to obey God but chose not to. And so he, by his grace, drives them out so that they would not partake of the tree of life and remain in their sinful condition. And so what God does, and he gives us this picture of these cherubs, these cherubim here at the gate, and it's a beautiful picture of the mercy seat of God. And we kind of established last Wednesday talking about how this would be the place <clears throat> this would be the place where Adam and Eve would return and worship God. This would be the place where they would sacrifice. You say, well, he hasn't established a sacrificial system. That sounds a little far stretched. Well, apparently Cain and Abel knew you've got to come to God with something. They knew you have to come with an offering. Where would they have gotten that from? Did they learn it from school? Did they learn it from their school teachers? Did they go to Bible college? They sure did it. They learned it because... They have seen the blood dripping from an innocent animal to clothe their own naked bodies. They know what it means and they know what God requires to worship Him and to enter into His presence. Now, as we look here at Cain's offering, we have to see here that as both young men are coming, they both know God's law. They both know God's requirements. They both know how to um, come before God the same way that Adam and Eve did. But now these young men are born in a sinful world with sinful natures, but they now have a choice the same way as Adam and Eve, their father and mother did. And that is either to yield and submit by faith to God's rule, authority, and obey Him uh, out of love because we see the kindness and goodness of God, what He's done and who He is, or to reject God's law, to reject God's authority, to reject even God's goodness and God Himself and try to make our own way. Through what A.W. Tozer called Adam and Eve participating in a, a fig leaf religion. And here we see Cain is going to follow suit. Phillips writes, True salvation revolves around three focal points. The Word of God, the work of Christ, and the witness of the Spirit. Cain's religion found a substitute for all three. Instead of orbiting around the Word of God, it had its first focus in a purely human scheme. I don't think any true words could ever be spoken, especially not just when we see the problem with Cain and Abel in that day, but the same exact problem we find with religion today. The same problem that we find with most Baptists today. The same problem that we find perhaps even in our own church today 
is this great issue is that we approach salvation God's way is what we should be doing. What happens is that for so long we have preached moralism, we've preached methods, we've preached all these outward things, and we have never gotten to the root and to the simplicity of the Word of God, the work of Christ, and the witness of the Spirit. Without those three, there is no salvation. And by the way, without those three, you don't get sanctification either. Without those three, there's no glorification. Without those three, you've got nothing. This is why we have nothing to bring to the Lord. We have no, no goodness to bring. We have to see that the only way that we know about God is the Word of God. What is that? It's as we've talked about, it's the promise of God, the Word of God. It is the revealing of God. How about the second thing that he talks about? The work of Christ. Well, that's what we talked about with Jesus. Jesus being the promise, the Word of God, and the fulfillment of the provision of God, the work of God. It is found in the Word and work, and that's found in the person of Jesus. Jesus is the Word of God. Jesus does the work of God. Matter of fact, He said, I come not to do my own work or my own will, but I come to do the work and the will of the One who sent me, my Father. And how did He do it? He did it through the witness or the power of the Spirit. While Jesus was very much God on this earth, how did He operate? He operated in the flesh, not by His own flesh, and certainly not by sinful flesh, but in His flesh He surrendered to the work and the witness of the Spirit. So, we have to understand that these three are found. And so we need these three for salvation. We need these three for everything. And now when we look at this, they're coming for offering for sin. They're coming to worship. They're coming to the mercy seat which requires blood. And even more so than requiring blood, it requires faith. Because I would tell you this, you will not shed innocent blood if you do not believe that that will cover your sin. You will much rather take some fig leaves off a tree and make yourself an apron because you go, well, that seems much more sensible. Right? Because when we look at the Bible and we look at the Old Testament, and even when we look at the New Testament, mind you, if you want to see and people say, well, the New Testament isn't bloody like the Old Testament. Oh, but it is. All you need to do is look at the cross. That's been the, it is the bloodiest sacrifice that there ever has been. There's been times in the Old Testament where kings have literally slain and seen thousands of animals offered on one day. And still that does not compare to the wrath that abided upon Jesus the Son that day. It still doesn't compare to His sacrifice. It still doesn't compare to what took place on that dark day of Calvary. And now when we look at this though, God doesn't require blood because He's some sort of bloodthirsty pagan God, but rather because it is not a blood that satisfies, but rather it is the innocent substitute for one that is guilty. It is a guiltless one for the guilty. And all these animals in the Old Testament, none of them could satisfy. This is why year after year they would have a Day of Atonement. And even what we're seeing for Cain and Abel in this day is a picture of the coming Day of Atonement where blood must be shed upon the mercy seat to atone or to cover for sins. And you know how long it lasts? For a year. But really, in many ways, it wouldn't even last that long because come another week, month, uh, a couple months at most, they're going to have to be sacrificing again to worship the Lord. When they worship God, there must have been and had to have been sacrifice. For you and I, we're, we're told now when we go to worship the Lord, it's not that we are required to give a sacrifice, but we are the sacrifice. We are both in this weird paradox, a dead sacrifice that we're dead in Christ, but yet we're alive and now we're a living sacrifice for Him. We don't have to spill any blood because the blood of Christ has already been spilled for us. And so when we look at this, we have to understand here, many people look at Cain's offering and they say, well, the biggest problem that Cain had 
is that he brought vegetables and not blood. Well, hold on here. While there's nothing wrong with fruit or grain offerings, if we remember, go a little further in the Old Testament, God is even going to offer and, and tell them, hey, here's some times for some grain offerings, some wheat offerings. There's different times for these harvests and things. Now, what about this, though? The issue is less so about this. A true offering must not only be one of innocent blood to act as a substitute, but it must be offered by faith. Now, here's the importance. What's the difference between a vegetable and a lamb? A lot, right? A whole lot, right? Now, if I were to ask you what's the difference between a, a tomato and a tomato, right, you could have some debate, right? Maybe even a, a debate between a, what's the difference between a squash and a zucchini. You could have some debate, and I, I can't get in on that debate. Now, I'll argue just to make you frustrated, but it won't do no good. But look at this. When we think here about the difference, the difference is one acts as a mediator that is flesh and blood, while the other one, the moment it's picked off the vine, it ceases to have its life. That vegetable, that fruit, is dependent upon that vine to have life. This is why it's so important when Jesus says, you want to have life? You want to have fruit? Well, you've got to abide in me. We wonder why we don't have fruit in our lives. Well, it's because we're not abiding in the Lord. Nevertheless, that's a different sermon for, for another day, but we look at this here and we see what's the key. Flesh and blood. We need a flesh and blood sacrifice. But we need to put faith, not in, uh, not in our works, not in fruits and vegetables, not even just the fact that we brought a sacrifice, but rather we're putting our faith in the one that is accepting the sacrifice. We're putting faith that He will accept it. Could you imagine such? Could you imagine on this day, both boys show up with fruits and vegetables? It'd be a rough day, wouldn't it? You'd go from I'm coming to worship the Lord and now He won't accept either one of us. Why? Because we've approached the wrong way. You see, the issue is less about the fruits and vegetables and it's more so about one is approaching with fruits and vegetables and no faith. The other one's approaching with flesh and blood and faith. By faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. You read the whole Old Testament, you read the New Testament, everyone that has ever been born again has been saved the same way as you and I have been saved and it's by grace, through faith, Right, that's, that's, the, that's the, the means that God has chosen. It's that we simply say yes to Him. We depend upon Him. Faith is not just going, well, I'm, I'm believing. It's this total trust, a dependence. It even gives the picture of a laying down of oneself. It, it is a total surrender. So when you put your faith in God, it's even much more than you trusting that that chair is going to hold you up. Right? I know preachers, we use illustrations all the time. It, faith isn't just you sitting down in that pew. It's trusting that God's not going to let you fall through that pew and into hell. Right? We see the difference? I can trust that that pew will hold me up because it holds me up every time I sit on it. Faith is going, I'm not just putting my body weight on it, I'm putting my inner weight on it. Right? That, that thing's just holding your body. God holds your body, soul, spirit. He holds all of who you are, all that you are, all that you ever could be. And even more than that, He saves you when you were His enemy, when you were sinful, when you were against him now here's what's important about the blood and the flesh the flesh and the blood right this is what is required because only flesh and blood can act as a mediator and a representative for flesh and blood what are we now we're made up of a whole bunch of water um, since we're Baptist we got some chicken in us somewhere we got some probably about 70 percent water about 10% casserole, 20% whatever else, right? 
Now think about this. We have got flesh and blood. That's what we see. Flesh on the outside, blood's on the inside, right? When blood comes on the outside, what happens? We go, oh, we've got to put it back on the inside or we've got to keep it from coming out, don't we? You run out of blood, you're done. The blood represents life. That's the key. And this is what God tells us in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that the life is in the blood. And it is, not just physically, but spiritually, if we think about it, there is no life without the shedding of blood. There is no forgiveness of sins without the, um, without the shedding of blood. Now, Jesus, let's think about Jesus, all right? This whole Bible is about Jesus, right? It, it is revealing Jesus to us. It, it, it is even Jesus revealing God to us. It, it, that's the whole point. Now, what is Jesus made of? He's made of God because he is God. It's not just a part of him. He's not 50% God and 50% man. He's all God and he's all flesh, but without sin. Tempted in like manner. He's known sorrows and pains and heartaches. He's known the temptation. He's known the wilderness. He's known loneliness. He's known those things. And yet without sin. But let's think about this. Jesus, as you and I are flesh and blood, well, flesh and blood is needed to be that mediator, to be that representative for the remission of sins. Now Jesus, who is God, when he comes to this earth, who is he representing? His Father. He said, I come to do the will of my Father who sent me. Why? To be the light of the world. To be the good shepherd. To be the bread of life. So that all who would partake, all who would come, may live, may have forgiveness of sins, may have eternal life. Now, the earliest heresy that they dealt with in the early church, you know what it was? It was not that Jesus wasn't God. It was that Jesus wasn't man. Gnosticism in the first century taught, they said, well, sure, he's God. He had a God spirit, a Messiah spirit, even, they would say. But he wasn't in the flesh. He wasn't a real person. But he was. Now, as this, when he comes to this earth, what does he do? Perfect mediator for God, because he is God. Perfect representative for God, because he is God. But when he's in the flesh, what else is he? He's the perfect mediator for man, because he's perfectly human. And he's the perfect human, the only one that ever existed. And he's the perfect uh, mediator and representative for man because he's the only one that can represent for man to God. It takes perfection to be in the presence of God. And no one else could be. Only someone that is sinless could approach God for sinful man. But yet, man can't be in the presence of God and see him lest he die. So what must happen? God puts on flesh. So the flesh and blood is very important here to see that this is much more than fruits and vegetables because God could have sent a big old gourd and said, if you just look at the gourd, you'll be saved. Right? Well, that sounds pretty simple. There's much more than that, though. Instead, what He does is He comes to show us through all the Scripture that He, in His flesh and in His blood, and think about this. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, what does He say? This is my body, flesh. This is my blood. It is broken and shed for you. Why? For the remission of sins, so that you may be reconciled to God. Jesus, the God-man, in the flesh, in flesh and blood, acts as the perfect mediator and the perfect representative for both parties here. And Cain misses out on this. One commentator writes, The basic philosophy behind Cain's religion 
was that salvation had to be earned. That it had to be merited. Purchased at the cost of one's own effort and toil. Therefore, Cain brought to God the fruit of that over which had labored and toiled. The notion of good works merit salvation is at the heart of every false religion on earth and is at the heart of every false cult in Christendom. It's at the heart and very nature of man to want to be able to bring his own work to God and say, look what I've made. Now, creating as a man is not a bad thing. You were designed to be creative. God said, go have dominion. We are made in His image and likeness. What does God do? The very first thing we see Him doing is creating, is it not? We see Him creating before He does anything else. But we were designed to create things with our hands. However, we were never designed to trust in the things that we create with our hands. We were instead designed to whatever we create to go, God, thanks for letting me make this. It's for You. It belongs to You. Lord, the hands belong to You. The offering is Yours. My hands are yours. My mind is yours. My heart is yours. All of me is yours. And what Cain does here is what Adam and Eve had first done. Oh, I'm naked before God. I can't get to God. I've got to get to God. So I've got to put on some nice clothes. I've got to put on these fig leaves. Or I've got to bring him what I've been working on. I've been working. I've got the biggest pumpkins around. I've got the biggest vegetables around. I've got the biggest whatever around. He's got the beautifulest fruit. What is implied here is not even that Cain brought ugly looking fruit. It's that he would have brought something that was beautiful in this garden. Remember, they're a whole lot less removed from the fall than we are. We think we got some good gardens now. They were able to grow. The Lord never says that you're going to go out there. He says you're going to have to toil for your food. But he doesn't say it's going to turn out bad. The Lord had provided for them. And what Cain does here is he makes the mistake that his father and mother had made. He makes the same mistake that the modern Baptist makes. They profess profess God with their lips. They come with these outward works and things. So many are counting on their salvation being this list of I did. You ask someone, are you a Christian? Well, of course. Everyone in the South is a Christian. Then you say, well, why are you a Christian? Or if you say, well, why are you going to heaven? Can you tell me why? Then the normal answer goes, well, well, sure. Let me give you my resume. And here's my resume, right? What's your resume? Your resume is your works. The places that you've done, the places where you've worked before, the places where you maybe didn't get fired so you don't put it on there and all that stuff, right? It's your resume. It's going, this is who I am. This is where I've worked. These are my qualifications. Is that right? Here's my qualifications. And so they go, well, I, you know, I've, I've been in church my whole life. Um, I prayed the sinner's prayer. And I can't never find one. If there ever was one, it's God have mercy on me, a sinner. That's it. We don't even find asking Jesus into your heart. Now, if you're wearing sandals and your toes hurt, you'll be okay. We don't find those things. What do we find? We find helpless sinners who cry out to God. We find the same thing that we're going to find with Abraham in just a few short chapters where it literally, this is, what, this is Abraham's salvation. You ready for this? And he believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. That's it. That's salvation. Nothing more, nothing less. And then what else is on our resume for Christians here in the South? Well, I've been in church. I growed up. It's always right. The thing about I growed up in church. And then they can even tell you what church they growed up in. And half of Carroll County growed up in this church somehow. I've talked to people in this county. Half of them. I don't know where they at. We'd have to have two sanctuaries. Everybody that used to go to this church was, was here. 
hey, we can, we can laugh a little bit. It ought to break our hearts. Not because they're gone, because most are gone and going, going, gone. They're not even in a faith that they ever really had. They were a part of a church, but they weren't a part of Christ. And that's not the case for all, but it's the case for many. Because the resume that they had when they stand before God is, I was a part of a church, I was a member, I was a Sunday school teacher, a director. How about this? The basic ones that you hear. I was a member, I grew up in church, I know the Bible stories, or they can even tell you, you know, Jesus died for us. Well, He did. But what do you do with it? You can know Jesus died for you. You can even know that He rose again all day long. But if you have not confessed and repented with your heart, there is no salvation. All that means is that you know what Jesus did, but you've done nothing with it. And to not do anything with it means that you are still yet unrepentant and unregenerate. And then we'll go, well, I got baptized. And then I've even got family members. I don't even know if they're watching. If they are, I hope you get this. This don't work this way. Just because you got baptized in a river does not make it more special. You could get baptized in the Jordan River itself. It ain't going to do you a bit of good. Go in a wet center and come out a wet one. And you'll still be stinking and rotten before God. Your resume is, is nothing but dung. You can even try to give your references along with your resume before God. And if God were to call up your references and He might call your ex-pastor, right? You'd probably go, well, they were a member but they didn't come. They walked an aisle one time and I'm just hoping that's it. How many people are trusting and walking up to God one day and seeing Him and giving an answer? How come you should come in into heaven? How, why should you be with me? Now praise God, I don't believe it's going to quite work that way, but nevertheless, it's going to be like that. There won't be any time. And they got this resume. Here's all I've done. I even got my references. You can call them and ask them. They're over, they're over there. And it's worthless. What we're bringing in that moment is not just fruits and vegetables. What we're bringing is no faith in His work. We're bringing fruits and vegetables and faith in our hands that dug the dirt, planted the seeds, tilled the ground. We, we weeded we watched it grow. We made sure it had water. We made sure we turned it and moved it and we picked it when it was just right. And that's not salvation. That is dead religion. Rock of Ages tells one of my favorite lines in all of hymn history. Nothing in my hands I bring simply to thy cross I cling. We've got nothing we can bring. You can bring the finest of your work you can bring being a charter member, being a member for umpteen years. You can even bring, God, I was a pastor. Isn't it Jesus in the Gospels that say, there's going to be many that say, didn't I cast out demons in your name? Didn't I prophesy in your name? You know what prophesy means? Preach. There's going to be a whole lot of preachers in hell one day. There's going to be a whole lot of sweet church women, a whole lot of sweet deacons. <laughs> and it's sad. You see, we can't trust in our work. Not because it's fruits and vegetables, but because we've got no faith when we're bringing God our work. There is no faith in that. There's faith in oneself. And what's faith in oneself? It's blasphemy and it's idolatry. And if we were to really break down what Cain's doing here, 
He believes that He's doing God a favor by bringing these, this fruit of His hands, this work that He's accomplished. God doesn't want your work. God wants you. He wants your trust. God doesn't just want you to trust Him because He wants to say, well, i got one more that trusted me. He wants us to know Him that we can experience Him and in doing so be blessed by Him because there's nothing more blessed than knowing our Creator. There's nothing more blessed than walking with our Creator as we were designed to walk. Cain had offered much like Adam and Eve had reacted to sin. They sin and they go, I hear God's voice. And remember, the idea of God's voice is not just God bellowing out some sort of tune as He's walking into the garden, but rather it's, it's the presence of God. I hear God walking. He's coming. And they immediately cover themselves up. The covering made by own works and hands without repentance and faith can never truly cover. Because even Adam and Eve, after, after covering themselves with fig leaves, Hide behind a tree. Because works won't do it. You know, it's funny. It just dawned on me. <laughs> it's kind of neat, actually. What do they do? They, first, they cover themselves up with their own works. Then, they hide behind something that they didn't make. They hide behind a tree that God made just a couple days before. Why? Because they know in that moment, this ain't cutting a mustard. God's got to have something that can cover us better than that, even if it is this old tree. They know in that moment why. Because we know in human, in our nature, we know that we're not right with God. We know that we can't stand before Him. We know that there is a grave difference between the holy and the unholy, the good and the not good. We know that there is a grave difference between the God of the universe and us, the dirt of the ground that He formed us out of. We've got to see here. Then we've got to look at this. Cain's cultivating in the ground. What Cain doesn't see here is it's God's dirt. It's God's water. It's God's seeds. It's God's garden. It's God's. Belongs to Him. What we're called to do is what He entrusts us with is to give it back to Him. The Christian should always have open hands. We have them open when we want to receive God's blessings. But boy, when He puts it in your hands, you better keep it open. We give it right back to Him. Why? That's where the blessing is. That's where faith is. That's where fellowship with God is. That's what the life that we're meant to live is. And now we look at Abel's offering here. It says, And Abel also brought of the firstlings of his flock, and of the fat thereof. The Lord had respect unto Abel in his offering. One commentator writes, the fattest of the firstlings, not merely the first good one that came to hand. Right, this, is, this is the show cow. Right? This, is, this is the best in show that, that he's bringing. He's picking the choicest, the best. Sorensen writes, the word translated as fat can also have the sense of of the choicest or fattest of the flock, implied is that Abel brought the best of his flock as an offering to God. 
And there's a whole lot who would write there and go, well, we're going to preach on this for a minute. We've got to preach about bringing God the best. And people would roll their eyes. Boy, what a biblical principle this is. You see, God doesn't just deserve our best. He deserves our all. It's not just that we should be picking out parts of our flock and our life where we go, well, God should get the best part of this part of my life, the best part of this, the best part of that. I've got to save some of the best for my family, some of the best for work, some of the best for this. No, 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 you're missing the point. Because in your work, in your family, in your fun life, in every other part of your life, if you're putting God first in that, well, He's going to get the best. But so is that part. Because if you go to work and you're doing it for God, and you're doing it through God, well, guess what? You're going to be the best employee they got. How about this? If you're struggling with family and you go, I've got to take some time. I've got I to gotta just hold on here. The Lord's got that part, but I've I got to give the family time. What if your family time was done by God and for God? What if it was designed for that? And that's, by the way, you read chapters 2 and 3 of Genesis, God literally puts this in place. This is what the home should look like. It this, by the way, and I know there's folks out here who think this sometimes, we hear that and we think this means we've got to go home, live like little house in the prairie, live like the Amish, and all we do is we sit around, we, we, just, we only read our Bible, we can't cut up, we can't laugh, we can't smile. Baloney and hogwash to it. Sit down together, eat a meal together, fellowship together, break open that Bible. It ain't got to be long and it ain't got to be complicated. It ain't even got to be church. But talk about the goodness of God. Even sing a song together, even if it is this little light of mine, and think about, hey, that's it. It's Christ. That's good. Let's play a board game. Let's laugh. Let's enjoy what God's given. We overcomplicate work. We overcomplicate church. We overcomplicate family life. And the reason why is because we want to give all those things the best without putting God at the preeminent spot in those things. If we put God in the preeminent spot in all those parts of our life, you know what's going to happen? Each part of those things your work, it's going to be the best thing. It's not going to be that bad to go to work anymore. Because you're going, well, Lord's going to do this to me. God gets to get the glory. I might have a bad day at work, but don't mean I get to have a bad day in the Lord. I can have a good day in the Lord, even at a bad day at work. And a good day in the Lord at a bad day at work is still a good day in the Lord. And the same with family, the same with every part of our life. But even more so than Abel here bringing the best and the fattest, the choices of his flock, Abel's offering is given by faith and by blood. Selhammer writes, Worship pleasing to God is a worship that springs from a pure heart. That's what he brings here. A pure heart is only pure when it has faith in the pure God. Who is pure? If you want to understand what pureness is, it's found in Christ. It's found when you look to God. There's no other pureness anywhere else. We might hear about pureness and wholesome things in this world yet still, and there's very few and far between of that anymore. But if you want to talk about purity, you know what a synonym for purity is? Holiness. What do we, what do, we do when we approach God in worship? We should be holy before Him. I don't have to wait for an invitation to get things right with God. I should, I should come already on a Sunday morning or Wednesday night, have already confessed sin, going, Lord, I'm going to confess. First John tells me, Lord, if I can confess my sin, you're faithful and just to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. I thank you, Lord. God, and help me now. Here's my sin. 
Help me to confess it, but Lord, help me to see that you've already said it's forgiven. It's already covered. So let me to live and walk in victory in that and to not abuse your grace, but now to live rightly before you, to live for your glory. And watch how much more alive church becomes. Watch how much more alive your devotional time, your prayer life becomes, your family life becomes, your work life becomes when we trust in the promises of God. And that's what Abel's doing here. He's trusting, and the only thing you can trust in, that's the promise of God. That's the Word of God. That's what God's already said and declared. And in the provision of God, trusting in the work of God. He knows that if this sacrifice is going to be accepted, it's going to be not just because He offers it, but He offers it by faith, and that's what God accepts. And we'll look at that in probably next week. We're not going to get to it tonight. That's okay. I want to look at this tonight. The idea here, as Salem writes, is that worship springs from a pure heart. What were these boys doing? Were they coming just to bring some sacrifice? What is bringing sacrifice here? What is bringing an offering? It's worship. Worship is at the very root of what we were designed to do. It is the highest thing that you can ever do in this world. And by the way, in everything that you do in this world, it is to be done worshipfully. When you're on your way to a job that you don't like, to work for a boss that you can't stand, worship God in it. If you're going to a good job, worship God for it. Worship God in it. Worship is not confined to the times that we have set meeting in this place. Worship begins within, in your heart. If you're not able to worship God in your heart, you're not going to worship Him here. If you can't lift up your hands in private, you're not going to do it in public. If you can't praise God openly and unashamedly in your own prayer closet, you're not going to do it here. Worship begins in your personal knowledge of God and surrender and sacrifice to Him. Your life is to be a life of worship. I pity the Christian that I've heard many a time say, Heaven's bound to be just so boring. One long church service. First of all, if your church is that boring, go somewhere else. Second, if you think worshiping the Lord, and even if that's all that we do up there, if you think that's going to be boring, you don't know God like you ought to. There should be nothing more exciting because you know something, there's nothing more satisfying than worshiping God. Because then it's not just, and understand this too, we don't worship God to get anything. All right, we don't. And you can't. That's not worshiping God rightly in spirit and truth. But what happens when you worship Him in spirit and in truth? Boy, praise goes up. Blessings come down, it seems that way, don't it? And that's not some sort of charismatic thing. This is the idea of understanding that this, as we are giving to God with open hands, when we give Him what He's already placed in there, He keeps filling it up. My cup runneth over. That's who God is. That's the God we worship. That's the God we should worship. I want to look here at the idea though tonight, and we'll, and we'll be done with this, with Abel. His offering is of faith. Faith comes, and faith really is this root for worship. It is where worship begins, a trust, dependence upon God. But as Salem wrote, it's from a pure heart. Turn with me to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. I want to look at one key phrase in Psalm 119. 
And it's found in a few more times than what I'm going to give to you tonight. And it is that phrase, whole heart. Whole heart. Let's break that down. W-H-O-L-E, whole. How much is that? All. There you go. Look at y'all. Whew. Listen to that participation. We about broke out revival tonight, y'all. All right. So I'm talking about, let's try it again. What is whole? What's it mean? There we go. We're getting somewhere now. How about this? What does heart mean? Oh, that's a little trickier. Okay. <laughs> but what, let's think about this. The heart's inside, isn't it? Right? Does it just mean that you cut open your chest, you rip out your beating heart, you give it to God? No, you're going to die that way, right? This is spirit, isn't it? What's within the heart of man? What do we talk about the heart of man? The heart in the Bible represents the soul spirit of man. It is the real you. Matter of fact, it is the inner man. It is all that you are. It is how you relate to God. It is your surrender to God. It is your spirit surrendering to His spirit. It is your mind surrendering to the mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. It is you saying, all that is within me, God, is for all that you are. Not just for what you do, but it, all of me is for all of you. And it's surrendered to all of you. Now look at this. Psalm 119, verse 2. Blessed. Don't know what blessed means? Blessed. Happy is. Blessed. Filled. There's so much to this word blessed. We would say, and we hear cliches, too blessed to be stressed and all this stuff, right? When we think about this, though, tonight if we were to really get a hold of how blessed we are in the Lord, you just might shout a little. Blessed are they. Now notice this. When we find blessed, there's always this sort of provision with it. Not everybody is so blessed, are they? You can tell the ones that aren't. They look a lot like this. Very, I'm so blessed Jesus is so good to me. Right? Someone who's blessed knows that they are from the inside and it's going to show on the outside. It doesn't mean that you're happy all the time, but it means that even when you're not happy, you can still have joy. That's what blessedness does. Now look at this. Blessed are they that keep His testimonies and that seek Him, notice this, with fruits and vegetables. No, with blood of bulls and goats. No, with the whole heart. Faith, faith, faith. How about this? Psalm 119, verse 10. He says, with my whole heart have I sought thee. I'm afraid that most of us who have gone through this resume that we've taught Baptists to go through of walk an aisle, repeat a prayer, sign a card, shake a preacher's hand, and we disappear. We don't understand what it means to seek the whole heart. We ask Jesus into our heart, but we just want him in the part that's there for Sunday mornings. God does not want, as a matter of fact, I'd say this, God does not deserve 99% of your heart. He doesn't deserve 99.9. It's all or nothing. God is very much not for the, this sort of middle gray area. He says you're either hot or you're cold. And if you're lukewarm, you're disgusting. You make me want to vomit. He talks about you're either on a broad way or you're on a narrow way. You're either lost or found. You're either blind 
or you see. There's nothing in between. He says, with my whole heart have I sought thee. Oh, let me not wander from thy commandments. Verse 34. Let me find it. Give me understanding and I shall keep thy law. Yea, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Verse 58. I entreated thy favor with my whole heart. Be merciful unto me according to thy word. Verse 69. The proud have forged a lie against me, but I will keep thy precepts with my whole heart. How about 145? And I love this one. I cried with my whole heart. Hear me, O Lord, and I will keep thy statutes. Real worship is just that. What Abel does on that day is not just sacrificing the best and choices of his flock. But he does, as the psalmist says in 119-145 here, I cried with my whole heart. I sought thee with my whole heart. All that I am, God. Not just this animal. Right? Me. Living sacrifice. All of us. Not all of us, but all of us must be surrendered in worship. Our whole hearts. God deserves our first. He deserves our best. He deserves our all. It begins inward. And it's expressed outward. Why does Abel make the offering he does? Outwardly. Because he's already made an offering to God inwardly. The reason why he can offer and do so willingly the best that he's got is because he's already given God all that he's got himself. Story goes of a young boy who was sitting in a church service. Small country church. They pass around an offering plate. He ain't got a thing. Comes from a poor family. Walked himself to church. He's sitting there in the back and They've preached and they preached and they've prayed and they've prayed and they've worshipped and they've worshipped. And now they're taking up offering. And he's got nothing to give. The offering plate comes to him and looks around. He's got nothing in his pockets. He finds a little piece of paper and a little thing to write with. It just says me. Puts it in. You see, it might not be the best fruit, the best animal. God doesn't want your fruit, doesn't want your works, doesn't want your animal. As a matter of fact, God doesn't even need any more blood. That's already been accomplished in Christ once and for all. God wants us. Worship is giving ourselves to Him. I'm afraid the average Baptist who has read their Bible, who has prayed, who has done many things for the Lord has scarcely been to the place where they truly worship God. Because if true worship is a giving of all of oneself, I would wonder how much worship really takes place 
in a church service. How much worship really takes place in a Bible study or devotions? How much do we really worship God? It is time that real worshipers arise. That's what Jesus said. Worshipers that don't care about a mountain to worship in. But worshipers that worship in spirit, and that's lowercase there in John. Spirit and truth. That means our inner person, all that we are, is surrendered to the truth of God. What's the truth of God? It's not just this book. Rather, the truth of this book is the one who is the truth. The way, the truth, and the life. It's Christ. May we go the way of Abel and not just bring God our choicest, our best, but may we give Him ourselves by faith that He would be glorified and honored in all things. Let us pray. God, we love You. Thank you for this time. God, we're grateful for your word. Grateful that we can study, that we can see your faithfulness, your goodness, and the way in which you have called us not to bring you the fruit of our hands or our labor, Lord. We have nothing to, to bring. We have nothing to cling to except the cross. God, may we find ourselves nearer and nearer to the cross each day that we might praise you and know the sacrifice which you have made to save us, but as well that we might find the power to live the Christian life, that we might find our hope that we might find the only thing that we have to glory in is not our hands it's not our programs it's not our geniusness it's not our humanness it's it's what you've done for us it's your work god may we trust in you may we praise you lord we thank you for your presence tonight we thank you lord that you would accept us as we are but god you wouldn't keep us that way you change us Help us to surrender to You to be changed from the inside out. God, that tonight we would give You our first, our best, and our all. That we would be completely surrendered to You so that outwardly, Lord, worship might be expressed not through sacrificing of animals, but Lord, that we would be living sacrifices for You, holy, acceptable, and blameless. That we would be salt and light in this world that You've called us to live in, to walk in, to witness to. And Lord, that we might bear witness not of church, but of Christ. That we might be ambassadors not of church, but of Christ. God, that we might represent you. That we might point others to you. God, help our hearts tonight. We thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for teaching us through your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, y'all have a blessed night. And Lord willing, we'll see you guys Sunday.